But for this morning, we are in the end of John chapter 20. Jesus is risen from the dead. We saw at the beginning of John two weeks ago, Jesus uh, revealed himself to Mary at the empty tomb. Remember, Peter and John both saw the empty tomb and ran to tell the rest, but it wasn't until that night, the night of Easter on that Sunday night, as the disciples were gathered in that upper room, that Jesus walks into a locked room and he speaks peace over them. He says shalom to them. Not coincidentally, that is the first time in the history of humankind that someone said shalom and shalom was actually possible, right? The idea of shalom, it was a greeting, like we would say hi or hello. But when Jesus walks in and says shalom, the idea of shalom is of peace, comprehensive well-being and wholeness. When Jesus proclaims peace over them in that upper room, for the first time in human history, shalom is actually possible, Because Jesus has bridged the gap between God and man. We can have peace with God. So Jesus steps into that upper room. He says peace to them twice. He breathes on them. He sends them out just as he himself has been sent. And then he tells them, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. And from whomever you withhold forgiveness, that person will not be forgiven. He he sends them out to declare the message of God reconciling the world to himself. But interestingly now, as we come to verse 24... There was one of the disciples that wasn't present on that Easter Sunday night. It's Thomas. It says in John chapter 20, verse 24, where we begin our study this morning, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know exactly why Thomas wasn't in the upper room that night. The rest of the disciples were there. No, there were, uh, there, there are basically ten disciples in that upper room of the named disciples, and then certainly the, the rest of the, those who followed Jesus were there. But Thomas wasn't present. And we don't know exactly why he wasn't there, but I will say, looking at some of the things that Thomas has said earlier in the gospel, some of the the affirmations that he makes and some of the way he approaches things, I wonder if having seen Jesus crucified on the cross, he's not befuddled, if he's not confused, if he's not wondering and sort of had his world turned upside down. I think for many of us, in the midst of grief, in the midst of sadness, and in the midst of sorrow, there's a funny thing that happens with us sometimes when we're feeling grief and confusion and sorrow, we tend to want to isolate ourselves. We don't want to be with other people. We don't want to be in community with other people when, for what it's worth, community is exactly what we need in the midst of grief and sorrow. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to be alone. We don't know exactly why Thomas wasn't in that room on that Easter Sunday night, but we know that because he wasn't there, he missed out on that visitation of Christ. The resurrected Jesus shows up, and he pronounces these blessings on, on the people there. He breathes on them, but Thomas missed it because for one reason or another, he wasn't there. So it says then after that, look at verse 25. It says after that, the other disciples, verse 25, told him, We've seen the Lord, right? Well, that's great for them. You can imagine being in, in Thomas's spot. He sees them. I don't know if that's on Monday or if it's later that night on Sunday night. But he bumps into the other disciples and they say, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We were all gathered together. Where were you, man? Why weren't you with us? It was incredible. Jesus was risen from the dead. We saw his hands. We saw his side. His beard grew back. He looked pretty good for a dead guy, right? Where were you? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where a bunch of other people experience something spectacular that you missed, but that's kind of a hard thing to wrestle with, isn't it? I was uh, about a year ago, maybe a little more than a year ago, we do like a weekly staff meeting, and about a year ago, I, I missed one of these weekly staff meetings, and apparently, while I was not at the staff meeting, uh, Scott Ballon, who is our Shepherd of Heritage Ministries, Scott Ballon, and I don't even know exactly what 
prompted this or provoked it, but while they were having a staff meeting, Scott Ballon apparently did a, a very impressive impression of a gorilla, right? Now, I didn't know he was capable of doing a gorilla impression. I was not aware that, that was possible. He certainly never tried to do a gorilla impression when I was around. That's, uh, so there was a part of it when I got back, and people were like, you missed the coolest staff meeting. You won't believe what happened. Scott Ballon did the coolest gorilla impression. And I was like, yeah, great for you guys, right? Lucky you. I would have liked to. The staff meetings I go to are kind of boring, right? When are we going to start doing animal impressions at the staff meetings? I felt a little cheated. I felt a little ripped off. I felt a little betrayed that Scott had not shown me this gorilla impression previously, and I thought we were friends. So it wasn't long before I went to Scott and I said, hey, everybody's talking about this stupid gorilla impression that you apparently you know, decided to show to everybody but me. Can I see it? And he did it, and it was impressive. It was actually, a, it's a very convincing gorilla impression. And now you all are feeling what I felt, <laughs> right? Now you all are going, I need to see this gorilla impression. I haven't seen this gorilla impression. I didn't even know he was capable of that, right? It's all going through your head. There's something about missing out, being left out. Thomas is not in the upper room when Jesus appears, and now the other disciples come around him. By the way, the tense of the verb there, when it says they told him, we have seen the Lord, it doesn't mean they just said it once. It means they continue to tell him, we saw Jesus, we saw Jesus, it was awesome. Our lives are changed, Jesus is alive. And the response from Thomas, which he's taken a lot of heat for, by the way, the response from Thomas is, good for you. Isn't that so nice that you got to see him, that you got to hear him, that you got to stand in the same room with him, that he ate a piece of fish near you, that you got to see his wounds? I would have liked to have been there. There are all kinds of things going through Thomas's head. We can sort of plug in because we're humans as well. You have to imagine that in Thomas's mind is going through a thing of like, why didn't he wait to show up until we were all there? He knew I wasn't there. Why did he show up to those and not me? Now they're telling me all this. He certainly has the power to show up now. Why doesn't he show up now? Why doesn't he show up here? They're telling me they've seen him. I'd like to see him too. But Jesus doesn't show up on that Monday in Thomas's life, nor does he show up on Tuesday, nor does he show up on Wednesday. He doesn't show up. And yet Thomas very clearly here in 25 articulates the fact that just because they've had a mystical experience, just because they've had a profound and moving encounter with the risen Jesus doesn't mean anything to him. They say, we have seen the Lord, verse 25, and he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Notice here, it's a volitional thing. He says, I will, I will never believe, not I can never believe. This is something he's saying, I, I won't believe it unless I get to experience it. Now, it's, it's interesting because down through the ages, we call this guy Doubting Thomas. How many of you have ever heard the word Doubting Thomas? You ever heard of him referred to that? It's kind of unfair. It's kind of an unfair thing they do because all Thomas is asking is to see and experience the very same things that his friends all saw and experienced. He's not saying, hey, I will only believe in Jesus if Jesus you know, miraculously transports me to Mars. He's not asking for something crazy. He's just saying, I would like to see and experience the same thing all of you experienced. And if I can't see and experience it, I gotta tell you, it's hard for me to believe this is true. My last vision of Jesus was of him crucified on the cross. It's hard for me to imagine that what you're saying is true. There's a healthy skepticism in Thomas, but here's what I want you to understand as we begin this morning. That skepticism isn't a mark of shame. That doubt and that questioning is not a mark of shame or disappointment. That's actually skepticism that is essential on the road to honest faith. Let me say it again. 
Skepticism is essential on the road to honest faith. There's a, there's a crazy thing that happens sometimes where we, we, sort of, uh, we sort of expect people to just agree, right? It's kind of the emperor's new clothes. We say, oh, I love Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he rose from the dead, that he came to the earth, that he took the sin of mankind upon himself and he died in their place. He extends to them by his grace, resurrection life. And then we just sort of uh, expect people to go, yeah, 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 I believe all of that too. But just agreeing with me is not saving faith. And yet sometimes when people go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I don't know if I believe the Bible is true. I don't know if I, if I think that he is truly risen from the dead. We look at him and we're like, oh, you're a doubting Thomas. Let me tell you, there is, no, there is no shame or consequence for healthy skepticism. In fact, I would say this morning, healthy skepticism is something each and every one of us should have. There are all kinds of people in the world in which we live that call themselves religious leaders, people who put themselves under the umbrella of the church, who are recording podcasts and writing books and preaching on stages like this that aren't rooted in the word of God, and we should have a healthy skepticism about people's ecstatic experiences, about their religious understanding. We should look at that with a little bit of skepticism and say, is this true? Do I believe this? And in fact, the moment that we just sort of blindly go along and say, well, anybody who says they've experienced anything, I'm just going to believe them is a place we've gotten ourselves into a really dangerous water. Thomas says, I'm happy that you all got to see the risen Jesus, but I haven't seen him, and unless I see him, I don't know that I can buy this. I will not believe unless I see it. This skepticism is on the road to honest faith, which, by the way, is what Jesus was after. Jesus never looked at a crowd and said, just repeat after me these special magic words whether you believe them or not. No, he was always looking at the hearts of people, as we've seen several times in the Gospel of John, and saying, what do you want? What are you hungry for? What are you after? He was looking for true faith. I would guess that there are some of you sitting in the room today who are skeptics yourself, and maybe you've been made to feel bad about that, Maybe you have questions. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe there are moments where even in a room like this, you look around at other people who've got their hands in the air in worship or tears in their eyes or you hear their testimonies about their understanding of the scriptures or whatever and you go, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. And the temptation can be in a community like this for you just to play along, right? To just go through the motions and look like you believe or look like you have no skepticism or look like you have no doubt. Let me say that is not the right response. The right response is to be true in your skepticism. To be honest in it. And the church should be a place that welcomes that. This should be a place where those who have questions and doubts and skepticisms can feel welcome and at home. Why? Because that skepticism is a path to honest faith, to true faith, and not just lip service. I'll tell you, I love what comes next here because it affirms what what, what I'm sort of emphasizing here. Look at verse 26. It says, eight days later, so that's exactly a week, the following Sunday night. Here we see these early disciples of Jesus already gathering on Resurrection Sunday. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Let me tell you why I love that verse. This is one of my favorite verses in this particular section. I love it for two reasons. The first one is that even though Thomas has articulated his skepticism and his doubt, he's still welcome among them. Right? Thomas has said to these other disciples, hey, unless I put my finger in the mark, unless I place my hand in his side, I will not believe. And what he doesn't get from those other disciples is, well, then you can't be a part of our club. You're no longer a disciple. You're an outcast. You're a doubter. Be gone from us, right? No, he's... He's welcome in their community. They're gathering again on the following Sunday night and Thomas is welcome among them. That's a great reminder to us. 
It's a great reminder to us in those moments where we might be tempted to make people feel bad about their questions or bad about their doubts. That instead there's the opportunity for those of us who are followers of Jesus to embrace those who are skeptical and go, can I walk with you down this path? While we wait for Jesus to reveal himself to you, he's still welcome in their midst. Not only do I find that moving, I also find it moving that he still wants to be in their midst, right? I find it moving that he's still there among their community, and, and that's why I would say, you know, we've, we've sort of historically called him Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas, but I feel like a better title for Thomas is Thomas the Faithful. Thomas is faithful to still show up, to still number himself among the faithful here. He's still showing up for their gathering of disciples, even though he has his questions, even though he has his doubts. I think that's profoundly moving and really important, especially for those of you who are in this room who have questions of your own, that you keep showing up. Why? Because he wants to see Jesus revealed, because he wants to have those questions answered. He wants to see the the truth be revealed. I would guess that there are some of you in here, young people, who are only Christians because your parents are. And you're at that place now where you're sort of wrestling with it and you're going, well, do I actually believe these things? You're putting up the Christmas tree and all of this and you're thinking about the incarnation. Jesus come to earth in a body and you're thinking, is this really true? Or is this just a thing I towed the line on because my parents believed it? Or because my culture sometimes affirms it? And if you're wrestling with that, if you're skeptical, if you're asking good questions, my encouragement to you would be look at the model that Thomas sets here. He does not neglect the assembly of God's people. He continues to gather. Why? Because Christ is revealed in his community. It's not insignificant that Jesus shows up in that group. He doesn't show up with Thomas earlier on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. He shows up where? In the midst of their gathering. Jesus is revealed in his people. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But it says on the eighth day, Thomas, the faithful, is with them. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's the third time he pronounces shalom over them. Shalom that's actually a tangible thing that's possible for them at that point. He says, peace be with you. And stands among them. Then he said in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. I want you to notice here that there is not a moment. When Jesus shows up. There's not a moment where Thomas goes. Oh good it's good that you're here. I've already had a conversation with all of these other guys. And I've told them that if I don't see your wounds. If I can't poke your nail holes in your hands. If I can't put my hand in your side. I will not believe in you. I just want to be clear about that. No. Thomas doesn't re-articulate his expectation. He doesn't re-articulate his question. What does that tell us? It tells us that on Monday, when Thomas was likely wishing Jesus would pay attention to him, and on Tuesday, when Thomas was wondering if Jesus was even there, and on Wednesday, when he was sort of hoping that Jesus would show up and Jesus never did, and on Thursday, when he was hoping he could have the same experience that everybody else had had, that even though it felt like Jesus wasn't paying attention, Jesus was paying attention. Jesus shows up in their midst and he speaks shalom over them and then without being prompted he says, Thomas, I think you wanted to see these things. What does that say? It says that Jesus knows. I hope that you who were skeptical here this morning, absolutely welcome, but you have your questions and your doubts, I hope you know that Jesus sees you in that struggle, that he hears you in your questions, 
that he doesn't rebuke you, I want you to know here that when Jesus shows up, he goes, he, he does not say, hey, Thomas, I heard you've been a doubter this week. You don't want to be in the Bible that way, do you? Right? Somebody's writing all this down. No. There is no rebuke. There's no correction. Jesus doesn't look at Thomas and say, shame on you for not believing. No, Jesus shows up and says, I heard you wanted to see this. Here are my hands. Take your hand and put it in my side. Jesus sees you and he knows you. He hears you, even in the midst of your questioning and your doubt. Now, granted, he doesn't necessarily always answer in the timeline we would like. Don't you suppose Thomas would have liked Jesus to show up on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? You bet. There are some of you in this place who maybe have been waiting for Jesus to answer questions you have about the pain you're in or the brokenness you're feeling, questions about the scriptures or about who God is or what he does or why the world exists or whatever. You might have these questions and you're waiting for God to answer. Listen, he is still the God of the universe. You might not believe that yet, but he is still in control. He, he's not uh, you know, sort of a dancing monkey on a chain for us. He doesn't perform for us. Even his response here is not him sort of complying with what with what Thomas has demanded, this is just Jesus being gracious. Jesus shows up and says, here's what you're looking for, and Jesus will reveal himself to us as well, sometimes in a different timeline than we would like. Eight days later, Jesus shows up in a locked room, and he says, here you go. Now, here's what's interesting. It, it doesn't say that Thomas ever does that. We sort of assume throughout the ages that Thomas goes, oh, good, I wanted to poke this, and I wanted to put my hand in here, Right? It doesn't say that. In fact, what it says is that Jesus looks at him and says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. I love the way that's worded. That's actually a really great translation in the ESV here. Do not disbelieve but believe. The reality is uh, even people who say I'm an unbeliever, or people say I don't have belief. We all, we all have belief, right? We're all putting faith in something. You're choosing to disbelieve certain things and you're choosing to believe other things. I'm a, you know, I... I uh, I've heard a lot of people in the last week or so tell me that new Frozen movie is good. And I'm choosing to disbelieve that, right? I'm a, a kind of an indie music guy. I like a lot of underground and sort of independent music. And one place I always get myself in trouble is that most, most people who are into indie music are really big fans of Radiohead. And for some of you, you might not have any idea who Radiohead is. It's a band from England. I'll tell you, I've listened to those Radiohead records. I don't get it, right? I don't get it at all. And I, I sometimes when I'm hanging out with other indie kids, I feel the temptation to pretend like I like Radiohead. But I'm just being honest with you this morning. I, I just don't understand it, right? <laughs> Judge me if you will. He looks at him and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Why? Because we're all choosing to believe in something. You may not be believing in the authority of the scripture. You may not be believing in the resurrected Christ. You may not be believing that Jesus is the son of God. But what you're believing instead is something somebody else either told you or something you yourself concocted. But we're all believing something. There is no one for whom there is zero belief. We're all trusting in something. And we're choosing to disbelieve in certain things. Jesus looks at Thomas and there is no rebuke. There's no correction here. He just says, stop disbelieving and believe. It's worth noting that belief is not something, when it comes to belief in God, it's not something you choose. It's not something you sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do. Belief in God happens because God draws you to the Son. Jesus said that earlier in our study in John, remember? He says the Father draws them. So it's not something you can just sort of activate on your own. 
Jesus looks at him and says, believe. And here's what's interesting. We never see Thomas touch the wounds. We never see him put his hand inside, even though he's invited to do that. What we see instead is a spontaneous declaration. Actually, the the clearest declaration of faith in the deity of Christ we see in the whole Gospel of John. Jesus says, if you'd like to touch my wounds, here they are. If you want to put your hand on my side, you, you can. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. In that moment, Thomas looks at him and says, this isn't just a great teacher. He's not just a good guy who cares about people and gave some great speeches and fed a bunch of people lunch. This is more than just a rabbi. He is both my master, which is what Lord means, and he is the God of the universe. It's a spontaneous declaration of everything John has been establishing from the very first chapter. If you've been with us in this study from the beginning of John chapter 1, you'll remember that at the very beginning of John chapter 1, John, the author here, writes and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, in verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. That Word being the very incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus. John doesn't give us a Christmas narrative. There is no nativity story, remember? In John chapter 1, he says, Jesus has always existed, and he became flesh. He is Lord and God. Now in John chapter 20, this narrative comes full circle, and we see a disciple of Jesus, Thomas, who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, who shared sandwiches with Jesus, who probably borrowed his sandals and forgot to return them, just like any of us would do. Now we see Thomas moving beyond that pre-cross faith. I think there may be some of us in the room who have pre-cross faith in Jesus. You know what I'm saying? You believe in that pre-cross Jesus. Good guy, great speaker, cared about the poor, fought the powers that be. But that post-cross Jesus you don't believe. In this moment, Jesus says, here I am. I both heard you and I'm present with you. And Thomas says, you are my master and creator. It's an affirmation of everything John has been trying to help us understand from the very beginning. He says, my Lord and my God. It's also worth noting that Jesus doesn't correct him for that. So if Jesus himself did not believe that he was both Thomas's master and his God, it would have been very important. If he was a good teacher and he was a good guy, it would have been very important at that moment when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, it would have been very important for Jesus to be like, whoa, Nelly, hold on there. Let's not get carried away, right? You can call me master. You can call me rabbi. You can call me buddy. Do not call me God because that's blasphemy. Jesus does not do that. And in fact, Jesus welcomes that affirmation. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus lets it sit. Why? Because it's true. Because Jesus is more than just a great teacher. He is more than just Thomas's master, although he is that. He is the God of the universe, and Thomas declares it. He says, my Lord and my God, in verse 28. Jesus said to him in 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's interesting. Uh, when, I, when I used to look at this, or maybe before this study, I always saw that as a rebuke. It felt like a, kind of like a little bit of a slap on the wrist from Jesus. He looks at Thomas and he says, oh, you believe because you saw me, but the blessing is for those who believe without seeing. I used to feel like that was sort of Jesus talking down to Thomas. Can I tell you, that, that is not what I think is happening here. I don't think this is a rebuke because, here's why I don't think it's a rebuke. Every person in that room only believes in Jesus because they saw him. So he's not just talking to Thomas and saying, oh, doubting Thomas, you doubter. 
It would have been better if you would have believed at the beginning of the week when these people first told you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Why? Because all of them. Mary Magdalene believes because she saw Jesus at the tomb. Those other disciples believe because they saw him eight days earlier in the upper room. Everyone at this stage in human history who believes that Jesus is Lord and God only believes because they've seen him. Jesus isn't rebuking Thomas here for his, for his skepticism. What he's doing is the same thing he's done Time and time again, if you've been in this study of John with us ongoing, what have we seen Jesus do again and again? Time and time again, we've seen him look through the thing that's right in front of him to the thing that's just beyond it. He looks past the thing that's right in front to the thing that's beyond. So uh, when he's with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he looks beyond their physical thirst to their need for living water. When he's at the wedding at Cana, he looks beyond the need for wine to the people's need for his shed blood. We've seen him do it again and again and again to look past the thing to the greater thing. Jesus looks at them and says, you all believe because you see me, but I'm pronouncing a declaration. There is a blessing for those who don't see me and believe. Who's he looking at? What's he talking about? Us. Jesus is calling us blessed. He's looking through the ages, 2,000 years ahead and everything intervening and saying, there's a, there's a unique and, and beautiful thing for those of you who are sitting here in this room and the some 500 others that will witness him physically. And it's so cool that they got to see him and believe. But you know what's even cooler? That there are a whole host of people who will believe and be blessed by God without seeing him, without being able to touch the wounds, if you will. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those of us who believe without seeing and in essence, what he's doing at that point, because how do you believe if you don't see? Just follow my logic here. How do you believe if you don't see? Will you believe in that case by hearing, right? Through the, the testimony and the witness of those who have seen. I believe that in that moment, when Jesus says, you've believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who will not see me and believe, I think in that moment, Jesus plants the seed for the gospel narrative in the heart of John and the gospel narrative in the heart of Matthew, and the gospel narrative in the heart of Luke and Mark. Why? Because they start thinking, well, how, how will people believe if they don't see him? How will they? Oh, well, they'll believe because we've seen him, and we will tell the story. We will articulate it to future generations. Essentially what Jesus does here is he pronounces a blessing on the sanctity of hearing, the holiness of hearing the testimony of those who did see Jesus in person. And that's what we do. We have the testimony of those who saw him. We also have God's revealed word in the scriptures. We also have his spirit moving within us. That is how we believe. We don't believe because Jesus shows up in a room with us. We believe because he revealed himself and his witnesses like ambassadors have carried that message of reconciliation throughout the ages. It's why the Bible is vital to what we do. It's why the scriptures are vital to who we are because it is in hearing that belief occurs. We see that very clearly uh, with regard to preaching in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 14 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? People hear it and believe. They hear it through the preaching. They hear it through, through the written word. It's why in 1 John, the same writer will say this in his very first verse, the very first chapter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We're witnesses of it, and we want you to know it. We want you to hear it so that you too can believe. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he's talking about trials. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus reveals himself to us, not in the same way, but he reveals himself to us through the testimony of those to whom he has been revealed. John goes on to give us this sort of closing statement here in chapter 20. He says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's essentially saying, I wrote this book because Jesus said this, right? Jesus said, blessed are those who will hear and believe, so I wrote this down. Did I tell you every story about Jesus I could have told you? No, it's not a biography of Jesus. This isn't the authoritative manual of every place he went and everything he did and everything he said. What it is here is a testimony from me to you across the ages, John says, so that the very thing Jesus said would happen would happen, that you would be blessed, that you would believe, and that believing in his name, you would have life. Why? Because we understand from the scripture that apart from belief in Jesus, we're spiritually dead, separated from God, set to be separated from, from him for eternity. So that blessing Jesus is talking about is not just some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling, but when we hear the truth, when it's delivered to us down through the ages, and God creates faith in us and we believe, we are blessed not just with the knowledge of who Jesus is, but blessed with life that is not possible any other way. Resurrection life. Resurrection life. John says, that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book so that you would hear and believe. Jesus was revealed to him in community. Jesus was really clear about how that would happen. If we back up to the text we studied last week, he says to them in 21 and following, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I don't want you to miss in this text this morning that when Jesus sort of gives them this call, when, when, he, when he breathes on them and says, I'm sending you like I've been sent, he essentially articulates all the things that are the core of who we are as a church. He talks about empowerment by the Spirit. He talks about us living like Christ in both love and sacrifice. Right? It, it's in this text right here in that upper room discourse that first week. He talks about radiant peace, shalom. Not just that we would have it and hold it, but that we would radiate. Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation in who he is. When he talks about forgiving the sins of other people, what's he talking about there? But revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity with a broken mankind. That's one of the pillars of where we're headed as a church. In order to extend revolutionary kindness and forgiveness, which Jesus talks about, we have to be able to identify the brokenness. And so there's prophetic engagement, that being sent the very same way that Jesus was sent. This unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. Jesus wasn't what they expected him to be. But he did come declaring these things and Jesus is revealed in community still today. I want you to know that 
When we have a community of people that shames those with doubts and shames those with questions and shames those with skepticism, what we do is we create sort of this false front. It's a facade of everybody, you know, doing good and thinking all the same stuff and feeling great all the time. And anybody on the outside who looks at that immediately knows that's not true. Right? How long do you have to be a human before you know that if people are pretending like everything's awesome and they don't have any questions and it's all hunky-dory all the time, you don't have to be a human very long before you know somebody's lying. But when we can own the fact that we're broken and that we're hurting and that there are moments where we have questions that go unanswered and there are things, conflicts and difficulties and questions we've asked God that he has not answered yet, when we can own the truth of our experience, then what happens? We create a community that actually looks like real people. It's honest faith. So what is it that Thomas sees in that upper room? What he sees are the wounds on the resurrected body of Jesus. Do you know that it's possible for skeptics this morning, in one sense, to still see the wounds on the resurrected body of Jesus? Do you know it's possible to see that? We are his body. We are the body of Christ. And when people see us honestly, when we're willing to own our brokenness, when we're willing to own our scars and our scabs, when we're willing to own the fact that we don't have it all together and we don't know everything and we don't always feel something, right? When we're willing to own the fact that we're following Jesus because he's Jesus and there is no other. In that honesty, you know what's revealed? The wounds on the resurrected body of Christ that is us. We are the resurrected body of Christ. And in our honesty and in our truth, His wounds can still be seen today. Are you here this morning with questions and doubts? Are you confused about some things? I just would want to affirm for you, Jesus sees you and he hears you. And you might not even believe in Jesus yet, but I do. And I know he sees you. The scripture tells us he hears your questions in the dark that you think nobody else knows. And my encouragement to you would be don't neglect the gathering of God's people. Don't neglect this assembly of the faithful. Even though you might not yet number yourselves among us, keep showing up because Jesus is revealed in his body. Jesus is revealed here in this community. And so don't walk away. And, and for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who believe in Christ, my encouragement there would be we've, we've got to become a place increasingly become a place that embraces those with questions and doubts and confusion and wounds and beat-upness or whatever. I know that's not a word. But we have to be a place that's safe so that like Thomas in his doubt, showing up to celebrate is still a possibility. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for Thomas the faithful. I thank you for the way in which his questions articulate a determination to be honest in faith that sometimes we lack. Sometimes we go along, and even though we have doubts or skepticisms, we just sort of toe the line for the sake of fitting in. God, would you inspire us and encourage us that questions and skepticism can, can absolutely be a stop on the pathway to honest faith, which is what we're after. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to those in this place who don't believe in you or can't believe in you or won't believe in you. Those who've looked and have not found you. God, I pray that you would show yourself to them, that you would answer their questions. And God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in me, in us, in this assembly of your people 
that we would bear your wounds and your scars and your love and your grace and your, your peace and your kindness and your appeal, that we would reveal you as you revealed yourself in that room. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.